We're in the middle of a series called The Book, How We Got It, How to Get the Most Out of It. We're actually past the middle. This is part 11. And tonight the title is Reproof, The Hurt That Heals. Reproof, The Hurt That Heals. And the text, it's the last part of a passage that we've been studying for quite a while, 2 Timothy 3. We're just going to look at verses 16 and 17 tonight and for the next little while. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Do you have that in your notes? Let's read it all aloud and in unison, okay? Go ahead. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In our last study, we kind of launched into four specific steps that uh, lead into a fruitful reception of the Word of God into our lives. The goal of those four steps is the part you read in the last part of verse 17. The goal is that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So there's the target. We want to be men and women of God. And more than just the label, we want our lives to be fruitful, to have good works abounding, kingdom works, bearing eternal fruit, equipped for every good work, 17 says. So we want, we want our relationships to be full of good works. We want our ministries to be full of good works. Uh, we don't want lives that are empty. We don't want lives that are vain, is the word the Bible uses. We, we don't want to be just spinning our wheels. We don't want to just hold some isolated beliefs. We pop into church once in a while and kind of, here's our doctrines, here's what we believe. You believe that, we believe this. And so... The Apostle Paul, as he writes to young Pastor Timothy, Timothy's about 19, 18, 19 years of age, and Paul writes, and he says, God has this plan. He has provided something very special, and, and because it's so easy to overlook it or to undervalue it, Paul reminds Timothy that this Bible... It isn't just another book of information or religious instruction. There's lots of religious instruction in the world. Most of it is helpful enough, I suppose, as far as it goes. But the Bible is different from anything else. And, and the reason it will accomplish its goal in our lives is its unique origin. We talked about that in the first part of this series. It's, it's unique inspiration. That's what he means in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And, and see the link between those two things, between the breathed out by God and the profitable. Those two things are related. God is, God is very good at accomplishing things in this world. Think of the power of his words. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Of course it would be. Think of the power of God's words. Think of the power of the speech of God. 
let there be light. There's, there's, no, there's no movement of any other part of God's being because it's not necessary. Light. Our sun is one of the smaller ones, by the way. There are millions of them. What did God have to do to get them there? Answer. Light. And, and, and he speaks. Think of the power of God's words alone to form matter out of non-matter. Think of the power of God's word to start with non-life and create life. Man is the only being that God formed out of the dust of the ground. All the other life forms, fish, insects, and they're there. All scripture is breathed out by God. Of course it's profitable. It's profitable in the same sense that electricity has power in it. And so Paul wants to encourage young Timothy not to forget this. God's word, the scriptures, that's what he's talking about. They mustn't be thought of as anything other than living and active and powerful to accomplish their, their purpose. Now, so the goal, men and women of God, fruitful in every good work, the means, the scriptures. Remember them, Timothy. These are the means to that goal. Men and women of God, profitable, fruitful. The scriptures will get you there. And so we've been looking at the four steps that Paul outlines. The first one that we looked at was teaching in verse 16. Profitable for, that's where it starts, teaching. It's not enough, but it is the essential first step. It's not the last step, but it's the first step. Nothing can germinate from a closed book. The seed has to reach the heart somehow. There must be teaching. The word must get into our systems. It must get into our lives. Um, it takes more than most people think. And that's why we took a whole teaching on that. It's all online. The notes are there as well. So I won't review that. But it's a big step, teaching. Now we come to the second one, and it's kind of surprising. The second step in producing biblical change, in, in having the word produce its divine effect of making us men and women of God fruitful in good works, the second step is that word, and we wish it wasn't there, reproof. All scripture is profitable for teaching, fine, good enough, and, and reproof. Reproof is the rap on the knuckles. Point number one, reproof is the logical step after teaching. It only makes sense when you think about it. Once I see the standard, once I see the truth, once my mind is informed by the light, 
I'm immediately reminded as a fallen creature, just there's the standard and I'm not, I'm not there. I don't, I don't measure up how, I see how far short I fall of that truth. Now, until there's teaching, until my mind, that's why I said it's the necessary first step, until my mind is, is at least informed, confronted by divine objective truth from God, I can pretty much satisfy myself with the relative thinking of the world. I'm, I'm as good as a lot of people. I'm better than some. And if my conscience bothers me too much at some point, if I just wait long enough, it'll soon become seared and cooled by a host of experts who will just comfort me by telling me I'm being too hard on myself. This modern quest for self-esteem is just loaded with conscience-numbing effects. The quest for truth is so misunderstood, and that's why Paul breaks this down. He's not just throwing out some general instruction. He's, he's cutting it into pieces for Timothy to analyze. Because the quest for truth is so misunderstood. People, people who contend for absolute biblical truth aren't just interested in proving they're right. Or at least that shouldn't be the case. The whole process of, of transformation is stopped cold in its tracks unless there is absolute knowable truth to confront my life with reproof. Relativism never confronts. If you've been educated anywhere in Canada in the last 20 years, your teachers were all relativists for the most part. Relativism never confronts. Relativism accommodates. Relativism lowers the bar. Relativism has the morality of the pack. Relativism measures things not by absolute right and wrong, but by social acceptability. Relativism doesn't have right and wrong. It just has social and antisocial. And this shuts down the whole process of divine truth and its reproof. But once my mind sees the truth, God's truth, then my subjective moral opinions, the opinions of the media, they, they hit this speed bump of solid divine revelation. I'm awakened to, oh, there, there really is ungodliness. There really is unrighteousness. There really is something ugly in sin, and it's in my heart. What I once saw merely as weakness, or just the way we are, I now see as, oh, that's rebellion. Something starts to hurt in my soul. Something, there's edges to it. And it's important to remember that that process of reproof, hearing the truth and then reproof, teaching reproof, it's, it's healthy, it's upright. Paul described how it worked in his own life in Romans 7, verses 7, 8, and 9. Okay, that was not me. It's all those guys back there. 
Wouldn't it, I should have timed it better. Wouldn't it have been cute? I should have just fallen off my chair and just dropped it. <laughs> <on the floor. clears throat> this is all Derek Lee's fault. Romans 7, 7, 8, and 9. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? So here's the standard, the truth that's taught. Is the law sin? And he goes, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. There's the teaching part, okay? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, the commandment was taught, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive once, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. What's he talking about? I, I, I died. Well, what Paul is talking about is he, he had this righteousness. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he talks in Philippians, according to the law, blameless. That's quite a statement to make, blameless. And then he saw the, he was taught, he read, he heard. There's this command about covetousness. And covetousness isn't an outward act. It's an inward wrong. And all of a sudden, you know what's happening in Paul's little heart? Paul, as he persecutes the church and he thinks he's being zealous for righteousness, what happens is the very beginning of reproof is coming to Paul. Reproof. And my own standards of righteousness, my own concepts, my own pride, my own self-satisfaction, he says, the sword of the Spirit came and sliced that all up. And that's good. So don't miss Paul's simple point. Without the knowledge of God's law, Paul didn't see the sinfulness of covetousness. Without the truth of God's word, he was as blind to this sin in his life as though it didn't exist at all. He was more at peace with himself. He was more content with himself without God's word than with it. That's frequently the case, isn't it? <clears throat> That's why it's always dangerous to measure the spiritual health of your heart by inward peace or tranquility or serenity. Because, because the only reason Paul wasn't bothered by the sin of covetousness was he was unaware of that sin in his heart until reproof began to come. Then the truth came. Light was turned on. And it, and, it, and it turned up all those unexposed areas in the corners of Paul's religious heart. That's, that's reproof. And it is designed to follow teaching. Contrary to what a lot of people are taught to believe in today's contemporary church, if there's no period of reproof, then the teaching is meaningless. The process of teaching shouldn't end in reproof. Agreed. But it should always include it. Now, why does Paul go into such 
detail relating all of this to Timothy. Why does Timothy need to be reminded about the ongoing need, both in Timothy's own life and in Timothy's young ministry in this very significant congregation? Why does Paul have to underscore, highlight this step of reproof in making men and women of God? And I'll, I'll tell you why. Timothy's a pastor. And pastors, pastors love to be accepted by the people. And they love to be loved by the people. And pastors are just like the people. And Paul wants Timothy embedding this in his teaching ministry. Teaching, reproof. Teaching, reproof. Paul wants that embedded in his ministry because he knows Timothy's got a church full of people that would like to get to godliness without reproof. Me too. We'd like to get to godliness without reproof. It is no accident. It is no accident that in many, many, many churches, gatherings like this are called celebrations. Worship celebrations. Sunday night celebration. They're called celebrations. Well, that's because, I mean, celebration is an upward, right? And we all like to feel up. We like to feel encouraged. We like to think the presence of God just comes and brings nothing but peace and joy and comfort, and it does. On the far side of reproof. Not on the near side of reproof. We'd like to think the presence of God brings nothing but peace into our hearts. But it isn't, it isn't true that that's all God wants to do. So much theological confusion abounds right at this point that we need to constantly make sure that we as a church, we understand the difference between two terms that sound alike but are different. The two terms are condemnation, which the Holy Spirit never does, and conviction, which the Holy Spirit always does. Conviction is the part that's tied up in reproof with the truth of God's word. How do you tell the difference? Condemnation only belittles. Condemnation just lets the air out of the tires. It, it just settles on fault-finding. My failures. There's, there's no emphasis on a solution after that fault has been exposed. This is how you can always tell in your own life. How, how can I tell? How can I tell when the Holy Spirit's dealing with my heart, convicting me, or when the devil's coming and just condemning me? Because he is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. That's what he likes to do. How do I know the difference? Conviction, I'll tell you how. When the Holy Spirit speaks to me, the first edges of it have reproof. Can't tell you the number of times, I'm not proud of it, the Lord would speak to me and say, Don, you've, you, you know, you've been, you've been following me for 55 years. You know better than that. 
And this is the third time I've talked to you about this. And that makes you a hearer of my word and not a doer of my word. Is that how you want to live the rest of your life? That's reproof. But it's different from condemnation. Condemnation, I've had that too. What a louse you are. You are such a hypocrite. How dare you get up in front and preach to people? Grow a beard, move to San Francisco, and sell life insurance. You're a loser. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit says, Don, I want to germinate fresh life in your heart, but I can't do it on these terms. I need to do it on these terms. Follow me. Both hurt. This one, there's no future. Okay, when the, Satan is not interested in anything good coming out of your life ever, all he wants to do is deflate. When it comes with no positive spiritual direction, it's the enemy. When it comes, even painfully from the Holy Spirit, it's with a door at the end of it. Everybody understand that? It's really important to know. You don't need to listen to this one. You do need to listen to this one. Conviction only for a brief moment feels like condemnation. It's like, it's like you sit in the dentist chair and he shoves that needle in your cheek and it hurts for a minute, but it's all going in a good direction. At least that's what they tell you. <laughs> Conviction certainly does name and expose sin, frequently ignored sin, but only with the intention of removing it to help me to walk in the light into holiness and into hope and into freedom. That's why, by the way, preaching and teaching with no reproof element included will always be spiritually dead and useless, even if it makes people feel wonderful. It can never be anything but barren. That's why most it's no secret, just sit there some Sunday afternoon and watch the television ministries and they're all about healing and miracles and get this green prayer cloth and this bottle of snake oil and this water out of the River Jordan and send your 60 bucks and miracle after miracle and testimonial after testimonial. Do a program about reproof, your program will lined up in the 2 to 5 a.m. slot on Sunday morning. Oh, how we need the solid rock of biblical revelation on this point. Teaching without reproof has always been and always will be embraced by a fallen religious nature. It's not new. Here's an account of it from Ezekiel chapter 13. And you'll see, you'll see that kind of message with no reproof in it. And you'll see God's response to it. Ezekiel 13, 9, 10, 11, and 12. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. 
What's wrong with these prophets? God, why are you so hard on them? Ten. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Remember those words. Say to those who smear it with whitewash, it's going to fall. Remember those words. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall. The stormy wind will break out. Does this sound like Jesus talking about building a house on the rock and on the sand? And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where's the coating with which you smeared it? I thought you fixed this. That's a really important text. It is so pertinent. It's more than just, you know, some kind of a record of a holy temper tantrum on God's part. God's anger is expressed against any teaching that that purports to be biblical and life-giving in nature when, in fact, all it does is lightly wash over unchanged lives. It's okay. We'll fix this up. That's where that image of plastering a rotten, decaying wall with whitewash comes in. I still remember when we have a bay window at the front of our house, and when we moved into the house, every time it rained, go into the living room, and underneath the window, you could just take your finger and just push it right through the drywall. It was all just mush. And here's what I learned. You can't just repaint that. That doesn't fix it. You can't just sort of take some spackle or whatever that stuff is and go over the holes. There's something in there that isn't right. And I can still remember when, I forget who came over, someone from the church and cut this big hole in my wall. I thought they were wrecking my house. And then we had to replace a window because there was no flashing around it. And then there was no caulking around the flashing. And if you're going to fix it, you have to rip this all apart. And there's a lot of times when God comes into our lives and we'd like to think it's just, it's just whitewashing. And he's, no, I've got, got to cut this out. That's got to come out. We've got to deal with this. So that's where that image of plastering a rotten, decaying wall with whitewash comes in. You can't do that. First, you have to replace the old drywall. Scrape, tear out, sand, prime, paint. And the issue here isn't just some kind of legalistic hankering to beat Christians over the head. Remember God's word to the prophets in Ezekiel's day. God says, this has to be fixed properly so that the wall will stand up. So here's your life. And and reproof comes and God wants to fix the iniquity problem in my life so so that the structure will be strong enough to hold everything that God wants to build on top of it. Fruitful in good works. But down here, it has to be made right first. Everybody get it? Oh, man. Point number two. Don't worry. We're almost, we're well underway. Another 95 minutes. Point number two. Before the fall, only instruction was necessary. Since the fall, reproof must follow instruction. 
So, through the fall and the problem of original sin, which is we're conceived now in sin, all of us. We have that, that bent toward sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We sing that. Before the fall, before the entrance of sin into this world, all mankind needed was instruction. Since the fall, since mankind has disobeyed God, reproof is the only step that brings healing grace. Reproof is the only step that brings healing grace. Every person needs to ask that question. Do people just need instruction from God? Or do they need reproof? All of this has to do with how we conceptualize evangelism. How we view the lost. Are these people that just need information? Do they just need us to kind of love them, show them the love of Jesus? We need to do that. No argument from me. This church, this church spends hundreds of thousands of dollars every year just showing the love of Jesus to hurting people around the world. Is that enough? No. Can't be the whole deal because... Because people need more than information. They need more than a helping hand. They need more than food in their stomach and medical supplies. They need more than having orphans, have Christians adopt them through Child Care Plus. They need all of those things, but they reproof sin. It's Paul's whole point in Romans 1. I won't go into it. He says, on some level, on some level we are truth suppressors, truth deniers, truth evaders. That, that's what the fall has, has done. You don't need to take my word for it. Anybody that works with people, anybody that hears how people describe their sins, I listen to people a lot. Pastor Don, I've been rejected since I was a child, and now I can't love anyone else. My parents, Pastor Don, my parents constantly blew up at me, and now I lose my temper with everyone. Pastor Don, my wife and I are calling it quits. We're just not compatible. We weren't made for each other. We should have never been married in the first place. Pastor Don, of course I'm upset. So-and-so did such-and-such. The church isn't doing anything about it. Where's Matthew 18? I hear that all the time. People don't even know what they mean when they say it. So, of course, I'm going after so-and-so. It's just justice. Somebody has to. It'll help everyone down the road. We are such blame removers. We are professional blame removers. That's what the fall has done. We, 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 we do want our problems fixed. We know that we're needy people. We want change. We want to be Men and women of God, God has a tool that he promises will be perfectly able to accomplish that task, but before it will work, it must be embraced, it must be received on his terms, not ours. Wholeness always comes from embracing painful reproof. One of the great verses, it's in Proverbs not in your notes. And I don't have the reference. You can look it up. But I know the verse. Turn at my reproof. Surely 
I will pour out my spirit upon you. Turn at my reproof. Surely I will pour out my spirit upon you. Everyone said? Let's pray.